When I was a kid, teacher told me in front of the whole class that I'm so smart and so talented <laughs> that I can become a wife of a president one day. And I didn't get why should I become somebody's wife and I can just become president if I want to. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Born in Norilsk, an industrial Siberian town inside the Arctic Circle, Nadia Tolokonikova was just 18 when she moved to Moscow and became a founding member of the Russian street art and performance art collective Voina in 2007. It was her strong feminist leanings that then inspired her to co-found Pussy Riot, the protest art collective known for playing incendiary, highly political punk music while wearing balaclava head coverings. The group rose to fame following a now-legendary 2012 performance of the song Punk Prayer at Moscow's Cathedral of Christ the Savior, when Tolokonikova and two other Pussy Riot members were arrested and then convicted of, quote, hooliganism. She spent close to two years incarcerated in a brutal labor camp in Mordovia, Russia, as a result. But her time behind bars has not deterred Tolokonikova from continuing to act as an outspoken critic of Vladimir Putin or from leveraging the power of art in the name of activism. This week marks the opening of her first ever gallery show at Jeffrey Deitch in Los Angeles. The centerpiece of the exhibition, a new performance called Putin's Ashes, in which Tolokonikova leads a coven of women in a witch-like ritual to drive the Russian president from power, burning a giant portrait of Putin to the ground in the process. Ahead of the show's opening, Artnet News senior reporter Sarah Cascone spoke to Tolokonikova about the challenges of presenting her conceptual performance art in a white cube gallery, and how she remains optimistic about political change in her native country despite the ongoing invasion of Ukraine and her continued persecution at the hands of the Russian government, which in December 2021 labeled her a, quote, foreign agent. Hi, Nadia. Welcome to The Art Angle. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're so excited to hear about your first solo show at Jeffrey Deitch. Tell us, how did you come to connect with Jeffrey and set this exhibition up? I met Jeffrey years ago. It was during one of my trips to Miami to see Art Basel. And then I've decided to come to him for a word of advice. When the last year, 2022, I've decided to work on the art legacy of Pusheret because we've always been an art collective, but not a lot of people see us as such because we created this fake identity of punk rockers. And we've never been punk rockers, but this fake identity sticks to us because a lot of things are getting distorted in the press. And that's fine. The only one person who can fix it is me. So I came to Jeffrey and asked for his advice. What does he think would be the best steps I can make for people just to see Pussy Riot as performance art collective. As we spoke about some things that I've been working on, like projects with Jenny Holzer and our work with Marina Abramovich and Jews Chicago. And he asked me if um, I want to make a little pop-up performance art show at his gallery in uh, LA. And the centerpiece of the show is your new video, Putin's Ashes which I'm so excited for people to be able to watch it. I got a sneak peek. What can you tell us about 
making that video, conceiving the visuals and the painting that's in it. Putin's Ashes is a performance art piece that we created in August of 2022. It was created in the desert. The location remains unknown because it doesn't really matter what it is. It was created by a group of women who are coming from post-Soviet territories. It's Ukraine, Russia, Belarus, and all of us have really strong opinions about Vladimir Putin. In fact, we just simply want him dead. And this performance was a ritual for us. We wanted to unite all our powers and we wanted to bring together all our hatred to this man that started one of the bloodiest war in the 21st centuries. We wanted to bring it all together to bring closer his actual physical death. And it was a performance. It was by no means a music video shoot. Everyone who participated in the performance needed to have this strong psychic energetic relationship with Vladimir Putin. We did have a couple of women who had to escape Ukraine after the beginning of the war, actual war refugees hurting so much and they were channeling this energy into creating this art piece. And I'm incredibly thankful for them for participating because, as you probably know, for a good reason, relationships between Russian people and Ukrainian people are really difficult right now. Even between those Russians who are opposed to Vladimir Putin, still like just being born in Russia still can trigger a lot of terrible feelings in Ukrainian people's hearts. And knowing through such a great trauma they are experiencing right now, there is no way anyone can, can humanly be mad or not understanding about that. So for me to work with Ukrainian people on this art piece was a great privilege and a great honor. And I'm just endlessly thankful for them to trusting me and my story of opposing Vladimir Putin for decades now. So then after performing the ritual of burning his portrait, we collected ashes of Putin. And to me, it was an attempt to answer to the question of immateriality of performance art. I've been talking a lot with my fellow performance artists, including Marina Abramovich, uh, about immateriality of performance art and how difficult it is to show performance art properly in the context of museum or gallery. What do you actually show? Do you show just documentation? Do you show artifacts? And I collected those artifacts, Putin's ashes, bottled them, and built six art pieces. Those are furry frames with signs that say things like, this button destroys Vladimir Putin, this button destroys sexism. And it's all about magical activist thinking for me, because there are some moments when only magic and only collective power can save us all. And that's what we were trying to channel through this performance and that uh, what I was trying to channel through this art pieces that I created. And so there are three buttons, three magic buttons that help us to overcome the evil that found its body in Vladimir Putin. And three bottles with Putin's ashes. 
one smaller one, just five gram, 20 grams, and 100 gram of Vladimir Putin's ashes. And during the exhibition, you're going to be able to see the performance projected on the walls 360. It was really important for me to be able to bring people who come to the opening of the show inside of the performance. Because one of the problems with performance art, you show it in a small TV, on a small screen, it's not always easy to relate to what's going on inside. And I want to invite everyone who's going to come to this opening to participate, to be an active participant of this performance. And everyone is going to be asked to wear a balaclava. It's going to be an embodiment of this statement that we always say, anyone can be pussy right. It's not just me because I'm the founder. It doesn't matter if you've been there for a year or two or just one day, you can come to the gallery and join Pussy Rise performance. The performance in the video is, I think, maybe a little bit different than what people have come to expect from Pussy Riot. Obviously, the performance that launched you to international fame was kind of very punk, loud, yelling. But this is a much more, I almost want to say, like, a quiet power. Was that kind of an intentional way that you wanted to present yourself, that it doesn't need to be so loud in your face to have a powerful reaction. Performance art really, to me, it depends on the context. So if you have a church, you know, where Putin stands and pretends to be a believer, even though he was a KGB agent who, who was throwing people literally to jails for believing God in the Soviet times. So you have that church and you have... 30 seconds at most to create a performance to bring your message to the public. I think it does make sense to be over the top, provocative, to scream, to just create as much volume as you can during those 30 seconds. Same thing when you perform in the Red Square. It's one of the most known places for political performance. So there is always a police car, day and night. And you know that if you're lucky, you're probably going to have 40 seconds to perform. So you have to bring smoke and flags and be really big and loud. I think when you perform in a different place, in a quieter place, when you can work with bigger chunk of time and take as much time as you want to, you can afford yourself to be calmer and still be powerful. We worked in the desert and the only thing that limited us was the time of burning of the portrait. But we created it, we fabricated it in a way that it burns for 30 minutes. I have an incredible friend of mine, Joe Holiday. He's a magician. He helps me work on a lot of objects that I've been creating over the years, and he knew how to create it in a way that it burns for 30 fucking minutes, which is long. Normally, when you burn portraits, they're gone in, <laughs> in a matter of five seconds. But we wanted this performance to last longer, and it just felt right. It freed me up so much. The fact that I was working in the context of the art, like purely out of the context of the entertainment. 
that I allowed myself to produce the track. And I've been producing tracks before, but I never was confident enough in them to release them. So it's going to be the first track that I actually produced and written and recorded fully myself and played it to my daughter, who is my biggest art critic. And she said, it's really dope. It's one of the best tracks I've ever done. But what I have to say is that when you get out of the pressure that the music industry puts on you, it's suddenly so much easier to write things because there are no rules how the music should be created for the art world. Like, honestly, if you think about artists like John Cage, you know, it's completely impossible to worry after that if I'm professional enough. All sorts of questions of craft and fixations and anxiety that can haunt you and prevent you from doing things, it just leaves you. And so to me, whenever I have a worry about my abilities or my skills, I always open one of my books about conceptual art and I just dive really, really deep into it and get out of it refreshed and reborn because I know that it's so fucking crap. It doesn't matter. You have to deliver your idea and that's what matters. You mentioned that you had Ukrainian women who participated in this performance piece. And I wonder if you have given any thought to whether or not you approve of the idea of cultural boycotts against Russia as a result of the invasion of Ukraine? I think it's important to see a story of every Russian who you consider to boycott. I totally feel the resentments that Ukrainians feel towards Russians because it's not just whether you personally go to fight on the territory of Ukraine or if you actively support the war it's also silence of Russian people that allowed Putin to last for so long. And I do have this resentment against Russian people as well. Those who are acting like they're surprised right now, acting like they didn't know what's coming. I think it is important, though, to separate those Russian creators and leaders of political movements and cultural workers who were for years trying to wake people up and trying to warn the whole world about Putin because not just Russian people were complacent. The whole world was complacent when Putin invaded Ukraine for the first time. He annexed part of Ukrainian territory, Crimea. He totally got away with it. And it wasn't just a part of Russian people who were cheering him up. It was a complacency of a lot of governments around the world who would continue to do business with him and don't impose embargo on Russian oil and gas, even though Putin just literally broke the international law and took a part of a territory that does not belong to him. So when I interact with people from Ukraine, for the most part, they do see this difference. A member of my family, uh, my daughter's dad, he is on the front line in Ukraine right now. He moves around with a battalion and he shoots a movie about Ukrainian war and about the strength and bravery of Ukrainian people who protect their motherland. 
it's not just running around with a camera for him. It's also knowing how to use Kalashnikov, knowing how to launch grenades because it's not easy on the front line. So when people see that dedication and it doesn't matter to them that you technically have a Russian passport, they know that you're here, that you're actually rooting for Ukraine and you want the end of Putin as much as they want it. The father of your daughter is Peter Ver- Peter Verzilov, yeah. He was a member of Pussy Riot with you. Is he still part of the collective? He is part of the collective. Yeah, the funny part about Pussy Riot is that there is no formal procedure of how can you leave the collective. So people who do not want to be part anymore, they just abandon, kind of just focus on other things. For example, Kat, my co-founder of Pussy Riot, after her prison time, she slowly started to just drift away from Pussy Riot. So is she a member of Pussy Riot still? Of course, yes. It just stays with you for life, but she's not active right now. She might be active in the future. So it's an interesting structure. Definitely not easy at times, but this is what we promised in the beginning. It's anarchist horizontal collective, and that's what we stick to. There's a new Pussy Riot retrospective in Iceland. Were you involved in that show at all, or is that kind of separate? No, I wasn't involved about it at all. I read about it in the news. It was prepared by Masha Lokina, a person who also spent time in jail. She joined the band two performances before we ended up in jail. We just recently spoke about that exhibition with her. And again, it's an example of this rule that anyone can be Pussy Riot. So if tomorrow you want to launch an exhibition of Pussy Riot and you make performances under our name, put on a balaclava, protest against the government, you totally can do that. It sometimes drives crazy people I work with, especially in like more traditional established world, say agents. They're like, how is that even possible? I cannot market something and then have it's completely another act happening under the same name. And I'm like, well, even want to work with Pussy Riot, we'll have to learn how to live with it because I see positive sides of it because in the beginning, my and Kat's dream was to build a movement and we knew that something can happen with us. We can be killed. We can be thrown to jail. But if we are going to succeed in launching this idea into people's minds and they will want to continue it beyond us, beyond our physicality, that's fucking great and that's fucking amazing. And even though you cannot always control a narrative and that might be difficult for you as an artist, it still feel really grateful for we actually were able to create a movement. Well, and it's amazing that you did that so young. You grew up in a small town in Siberia, and when you graduated high school, you moved to Moscow. And what kind of inspired you at such a young age to take such a strong activist stance to really put yourself out there and to take that risk? Well, I identified as a feminist since I was eight because it just simply made sense for me. Feminism was a really important lens because a lot of things didn't make sense to me as a kid. For example, most of my strong teachers in my school were female, but we would always study men's world. 
And when I was a kid, teacher told me in front of the whole class that I'm so smart and so talented <laughs> that I can become a wife of a president one day. And I didn't get why should I become somebody's wife and I can just become president if I want to. And then I started to get interested in the topic of environment really from the early age because I was growing up in a really small industrial city where the snow often was quite literally black. And I did not like that. I didn't like the fact that I couldn't see the house across from our yard just because the air was so polluted. So it was gray. Then I moved to Moscow. I started to study philosophy and I co-created my first art collective that was really politically driven. We created it in 2007. Politics was always in our house. My dad was really involved in perestroika. He believed that Russia can be free. He believed that Russia can be a big player on the global art scene. With me and my dad would always look back in the avant-garde times in the beginning of 20th century when Russia was influential, but it was not influential with guns and tanks. It was influential with its art. Malevich, Tatlin, futurists. And it all brought me to the politics, both theory and practice. And I studied the theory at Moscow State University, Department of Philosophy. I was practicing politics, just going to rallies, getting arrested, and creating my art language that me and three of my colleagues, the uh, main creators of this early art collective that we did, our job was to create a new performance art language. The goal was to talk about politics in an interesting, exciting way. We wanted to bring more people to awareness about what's happening with political prisoners, with press being suppressed in our country by Vladimir Putin. But the problem was that the existing language of the opposition was really dull and and not really that exciting and not sexy at all. So our job was to renovate this language and create our performance art practice that other people would want to join later and get inspired by us, create something on their own. We did it until 2011. And then after that, I realized that my previous collective was quite sexist. It was a two heterosexual couples and um, men were always credited with everything for being producers, leaders. Everyone thought that they're leaders just because they happen to have a dick. Didn't like it. And uh, we started Pussyred. So that was the collective Voina that you were originally part of? Mm-hmm. Obviously, after so many years of working in this space, creating activist art, it's amazing that you're still so invested in it and so optimistic about the power of art and activism. 
In your 2018 book, Read and Riot, you wrote then that Russia is worse off now than when you were first arrested. And obviously, things have really, over the last five years, it's been a crazy time. And I just wonder, how do you stay optimistic and what are your goals with your art and activism moving forward? I think goals didn't really change. I still want to create performance art that will inspire other people to act and be loud and just don't be silent about things that bother them. I just read recently that Noam Chomsky said once, he said that you should always remain pessimist in your thinking, but you should remain optimist in the way you act because what is the other choice? You can just and go die immediately and give up. I always felt really similar. I'm not even close to being as smart as Noam Chomsky, but I feel like we share the same intuition. And so naturally in my thinking, I'm the worst pessimist of all. I always expect the worst. And I think my prison time only <laughs> only made it worse. Obviously, when you're in jail and you go to a court hearing, some people might be expecting good things, like maybe we're going to be released after this court hearing. Maybe I get a parole. Maybe something good happens. And I never had it in me. Um, always expected that <laughs> I'm going to get another two years, maybe another 10 years, Nothing good is ever going to happen because this political system is so deeply rotten. I cannot expect anything good from it. But it's just my thinking. When it comes to my acts, I feel a responsibility of trying to bring some sort of change into this darkness that Putin's government brings into my life daily. And it's not always easy. I struggled with depression for many years. I started to feel depressed for the first time, understandably, when I ended up in jail. And I didn't know how it's cold. I just felt really apathetic and blue and didn't want to do anything. I kind of gave up on myself. I just told everyone outside that you should just continue to move on with your lives and don't really look back at me because I'm done. And it was... Depression speaking of me, I didn't know what it is at the time. So that's why when I've heard that Brittany Griner, who was recently released, I'm so happy for her. But when she still was in jail and I've heard that she said this praise to her family, just give up on me and move on. I realized that it is the same and that's what prison does to you. And I think like maybe some other traumatic experiences do that to you as well. You just give up and surrender and feel like you're hopeless. So my life is always a pendulum between those two states. My traumatized self always tells me that there's nothing I can do and you should surrender. You're defeated because Putin is so much more powerful than you. He has all the money in the world. He has police, has army. What can you do? But then you remember that changes are being created by 
idealists, people who don't own a lot, who don't have a lot, who are ultimately powerless, but because of some rare quality that they have, this belief in a better world, they spark this hope in other people and they just bring it as a torch. That's how Navalny acts, who is one of the biggest inspirations to me. He came back to Russia after he was practically almost assassinated, poisoned with a nerve agent. He came back to Russia and was immediately arrested. Now he is in jail. Since the beginning of 2021, he constantly in um, isolation. He's been treated really badly. He doesn't lose his spirit. And just looking at heroes like him, I want to be more like him. And I want to help him to carry his torch. And I believe that Russia has a bright future as long as people like him exist. And I have to imagine that at some point you feel like even though it's unimaginably hard, that the fact that you're still being targeted, I know that you were declared a foreign agent at the end of 2021, that the fact that you're still being targeted has to mean that you're doing something right, that they're afraid of you. They definitely show a lot of a lot of interest and affection towards us. Just recently, a house of my daughter's grandma, she's a mother of my ex-husband. So her house was raided violently. They started to break her door and then she opened and then they searched her whole house, turned it upside down. I didn't really know what they were looking for. It was connected with political activity of her son obviously, because she's she's not politically active. She's a teacher. She's a tutor of theater and English language. She's 60-something years old. I mean, it's such a shame to target a 60-year-old woman who did nothing against this government just because she happened to give birth to her son. And then she was requested to go to questioning to the investigative committee of Russia. Needless to say, she was really scared because it's it often happens that you're being asked as a witness and then they put handcuffs on you because all of a sudden you're you're a suspect. And luckily it didn't happen with her, but the Russian government still clearly cares a lot about us. And are we effective? I think we are. One of the most important Russian media outlets called Media Zona was created by me and Masha Lukina and Peter Berzilov in 2014 when Putin invaded Crimea and he launched an insane crackdown on all the independent press. It became clear that you have to counteract with something because otherwise Russian people will have nothing to read their news from. And we gathered all of the financial resources we had, meant basically just using all our fees from speaking engagements and all sorts of stuff to channel 95% of everything that we earned into creating this media outlet. And so for three years, that's what we've done. We put everything we had in Media Zone and now it's acting on its own, our babies big and grown, and it did grow into one of the most important media channels in Russia. We had to move everyone, all the staff from Russia since the beginning of the war, 
in 2022 because it became too dangerous for them to report on the war while still being in Russia because of this. You know, basically can go to jail up to 15 years just for saying that the war is war, not special military operation. And hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of young Russians were growing up since 2014, getting their news from Mijazana. And some people know me not because I started Pusaret, they know because I was involved as a publisher of Mijazana. So I do think we create some difference. And I do think that dissent in Russia is really underestimated. People who stayed in Russia cannot really show their dissent publicly because it's pretty much a death sentence at this point. But when the time comes, I do believe that they're going to show their dissent. When the time is going to come, nobody knows because the totalitarian system in Russia went really far and it's a terrible climate. It's basically a post-apocalyptic world at this point. That sounds like such important work. It's amazing that you're able to do that with all of your artistic activities as well. I know you've also been very involved in NFTs and during Art Basel launched a new NFT project with Judy Chicago, What If Women Ruled the World? And then this month you're launching Matriarchy Now with photographer Ellen Van Unworth and Rolling Stone. Can you tell me a little bit about those projects as well? It was incredible to meet Judy Chicago. She's a matriarch and a role model. She's interested in um, the NFTs and metaverse. She was talking to us about maybe moving her physical sculptural piece of a goddess that she made in the Redan Museum in France with Dior. She was thinking about possibly moving it to the metaverse. And so she came to me and John Caldwell, who is my partner, co-founder of Unicorn DAO. And the mission of Unicorn is to bring women and LGBTQ plus creators into the Web3 space. And Judy was curious how she can use the metaverse and Web3 tools to enhance her feminist work. And we've decided to start from collaborating on this project that's called What If Women Ruled the World that is based on her existing series of posters that it's 11 questions where Judy asks, would buildings resemble bombs? Would earth be protected? Would there be violence? And she suggested me to answer these questions first and then give it to other people. Judy didn't want to limit it only to female or LGBTQ plus identified people because for her, it's really important to embrace everyone who wants to be a pro-feminist. Even if it's a straight, cis white male, she still will have them if they happen to be feminist allies. She learned a lot from her partnership with her husband, Donald Woodman, a photographer and a partner of Judy Chicago. I had a chance to hang out with both of them. And it's just amazing to see how how much support they give to each other. So potentially this project is going to be turned into an NFT collection. We kept this question open. It was important for us to 
gather the answers from people and then read them and then watch them because we gather them both is the text form and video form so you can choose which one you like the most you still can submit your answer by the way so go and do it <laughs> if you listen to this podcast after we just look at the material with judy and decide what we can do with it later and the project with ellen Mon onwards is um a series of 11 photos and i'm the main character of ellen's photos We started to develop this idea because we came to Rolling Stone, who made digital cover for Board Apes Yacht Club the last year, or maybe it was the end of 2021. So we wanted to tell a story about Unicorn Dao and our efforts of bringing more diversity and female voices into the space. Board Apes Yacht Club is predominantly male holders, and it creates like really specific environment at their gatherings and parties. And whereas there's nothing wrong with <laughs> men gathering together to have fun, we also want women to do that and do it even wilder than men do. So we partnered with Rolling Stone and Ellen to create a digital cover that represents Unicorn Dao and me as a co-founder of Unicorn Dao and tell our story And Ellen created this amazing photographs. We shot it last year during NFT NYC in New York. And we are releasing this on Coinbase because Rolling Stone has partnership with Coinbase. And the main print, digital cover, 100% proceeds of that sell is going to benefit Planned Parenthood because it's important both for me and for Ellen to support reproductive rights in this insane times for United States. It's pure fucking insanity for me as a person from Russia who, like, in Russia, we were never threatened to lose our reproductive rights. Like, not even once. Like, with all the totalitarianism that happens in Russia, it never was even the tiniest possibility. So, to me, witness this happening in the United States, is just, it makes me so mad. There is also a collection of another 10 pictures They're kind of smaller. They're going to have more affordable price point. And you're welcome to collect one of those. It's so important that you're raising money for Planned Parenthood. I think that's amazing. I was able to see you perform in Miami at the ICA Miami in December during Miami Art Week. What I thought was so impressive was that it's a really complete experience. There's audio and visuals and dancing and you had... A whole show and I wanted to know what is your process in putting together a performance like that in terms of the visuals and the music I particularly loved when given your activism in the NFT space that you did the viral TikTok song Crypto Boy which kind of mocks the crypto community specifically men in the crypto community and you had all these meme images running across the screen and it was really engaging in a lot of ways. And and then there was the mosh pit, which you just jumped into, which was the coolest thing I've ever seen an artist do. How does a show come together for you? So there is a continuation of this viral TikTok song, Crypto Boy, written by Salem Elise. She got in touch with me right after her song became viral. And then Salem started to brainstorm with me how she can 
use this song to help the abortion rights because it was right around the time when the terrible decision by the Supreme Court happened. And she knew that I have a history of fundraising for activist initiatives through crypto. And we decided to make an NFT drop with her. So she lost her NFT virginity with me. And I created the artwork for her song. And together we were able to raise, I think it was around $200,000 for that sale. And it went directly to Reproductive Rights, seven initiatives. People could not believe me. <laughs> I actually made her to make an NFT drop after making a song that NFTs are trash. But this is exactly what we're doing in Unicorn and what I do as a person in this crypto scene. I feel like these tools can be used for so much good. And the fact that it being used just for personal gain and for like sometimes for scam or just like complete trash, not interesting art. That fact does not mean that this is the only way you can use crypto. So you can turn people from hating the crypto world into being like, oh shit, I can use it for something good. The way how it works, well, it's just me being a nerd in front of my computer. That's, that's how most of the stuff work in my life. So when it comes to editing video or music, I'm pretty skilled in that and not the best person by no means, but I can make it work. So again, as it always happens with my, like any artistic process, I come up with the idea and then I'm just like, can I do it by myself or not? If I absolutely it's out of my league, then I find someone else who can help me to do it. But, but yeah, when it comes to putting together DJ set and video, I love doing it and it's really, really fun for me. And I really love to work with performers. And I prefer to work with local performers. Well, it's always important for me to have locality. And it especially comes in handy when you travel the world. So, for example, when I traveled to Latin America, I was there for the first time and I came with a tour. I didn't know that much about local political issues. Well, I read the news, but you know, it's completely different having firsthand experience. So I collabed with local performers, some of them would travel with me and deliver speeches about things that are important at this specific area. In Mexico, I worked with a friend of mine who was delivered speeches about femicides and how police does nothing with that, the police brutality. So in Miami, I also worked with local performers, local dancers, and asked them to bring their friends and their, their whole crew. And that's how it all came together. Well, the audience, including me, loved it in Miami. It was the most fun night I had the whole time I was down there. Now that you have your big gallery show happening, do you have any other plans for continuing in the more fine art world with a capital F in the future? Or is that still to be determined? I have some plans I'm curating a show myself. I cannot tell too much about it, but it's going to be a pretty big art show with big names, amazing artists, all-female lineup, and it's going to be benefiting reproductive rights as well. So there's that. 
coming up around March. International Women's Day is coming, so we have to do something for that. Well, I think that's a great note on which to end. Nadia, thank you so much for joining us on The Art Angle. It's been so inspiring to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manoli, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.